Hey, good morning, y'all. Good morning, good morning. <clears throat> hey, um, my name is Ed Griffin Hagen. This is my wife, Susan. She is here just to wave at y'all and to tell y'all how much we miss being together, gathering physically and locking arms together. And so Susan wanted to come up and just wave. Thank you. Hey, so <clears throat> this morning I want to read you quickly a text that I got from a buddy of mine who spent his career as a pastor, sort of a, has become a mentor for me, and I will read you this text. He sent this to me on Friday afternoon, and he said this. He said, this coming Sunday will be the greatest opportunity that you have ever had to reach more people with the gospel than ever before, even though you will not have a worship center filled with people. All because of COVID-19, the church has the greatest opportunity to see more people come to Christ than any other day that we have been alive. He said, people today are perplexed and in need of true hope and they will be searching media outlets as never before. Y'all, revival starts today. We believe that there's no doubt that God is gonna take all of this stuff that has gone on in our world and put it in a bucket and stir it up and use it to proclaim his son, Jesus Christ, as risen. I want to tell y'all one thing and then we're going to, get, we're going to jump into this. <clears throat> I want to get you to share. There are, there are people that need to hear the gospel. And so I want to ask y'all to share. Click the little button on your, uh, on your screen and share this feed to your wall. We want people to hear the gospel. Look, we have been, over the last several weeks, we have uh, been walking through the last days of, uh, of Passion Week, of what many call Holy Week, and we... We've looked at Friday and we've looked at Saturday um, of those days. We've looked at a little bit of the Last Supper, but then we looked at Jesus' arrest and we looked at his trial and we looked at his, uh, his horrific um, yet glorious crucifixion. And then we also looked at kind of the, you know, what effect the, his physical death on Friday, what effect that had on, uh, on his followers on Saturday and even into part of Sunday. Today, I want us to see the difference between Saturday and Sunday, to see what happens to total hopelessness and despair that exists on Saturday and what happens on Sunday. When Sunday morning comes, y'all, there's hope. There's hope that shows up on Sunday morning. Now, today I want to shift gears a little bit. You know, we're going to uh, we're going to look at a passage of scripture. We're not going to look in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're not going to be in the gospels. And I know probably if you have attended Easter worship services your whole life, you've probably not been to one where the, where the pastor wasn't preaching out of one or more of the gospels. Well, welcome to church on the trail because we are going to zig when you kind of expect us to zag. And we may zag when you expect us to zig. Now, I want to start this off with a little, a little chronology of sorts uh, of the events that will kind of speak to where we're headed today. So you have in AD 30 to 33, I think probably a little closer to 33, you have the death, the crucifixion, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. And then for some time, and we're going to shoot through this kind of quick, but sometime, probably about a year or two, uh, uh, you have uh, right after that, you have the book of Acts tells us that Paul, uh, Saul, Paul, Saul, same guy, is persecuting Christ followers. 
And at the time, they're called followers of the way. And in Acts chapter 8, in verse 3, it tells us, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then probably about A.D. 35 or 6, Paul meets Christ on the road to Damascus. He's on his way to Damascus to hunt down more Christ followers, more followers of the way, and he meets Jesus on that road and he is converted in Acts chapter nine. And then uh, the text tells us that he goes off to Arabia for three years and then he comes back to Damascus and in Damascus he's preaching Jesus as the risen Messiah. He's not preaching all kind of um, theology stuff. He's preaching that a dead man is walking. And he's doing that in Damascus. And then there's persecution there. And he gets out of Damascus and he heads to Jerusalem. And he goes to Jerusalem and he's meeting with a bunch of Jesus' guys. The text says probably about two weeks he's there. Now the last time that Paul was there, he's trying to kill folks, right? And so they're a little leery of that. Uh, But he meets with them and there's no doubt that they're sharing their Jesus stories with each other. And then Paul is sent off sort of... uh, to Tarsus, and the, remember the last time that he's there in Jerusalem where, where Jesus' guys are, he's trying to kill them, but now this same guy is a champion for Christ. So then he goes off to Tarsus, and in Tarsus, which is where Paul is from, he's preaching for about eight to 10 years. And then sometime around AD 50, he's on his second missionary journey. He plants a church in Corinth. And he's in Corinth for about 18 months. Acts uh, chapter 18 tells us that when he was in Corinth, he's planting this church. The text says that he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. He preached the whole gospel. He wasn't preaching half a gospel. He preached the whole gospel, and he did it constantly in the synagogue, constantly trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And he did that for about a year and a half. And then uh, uh, two years or so later in A.D. 52 or 3, while now he's in Ephesus, he writes a letter that we know, you and I know, is 1 Corinthians. He writes that letter back to that church that he had planted in Corinth. So, most scholars believe that Paul's two letters to the church in Corinth, 1 and 2 Corinthians, that they were written before any of the Gospels, before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written before those, Paul wrote to Corinth. So it shouldn't surprise me and you that the longest single chapter in any of Paul's writings is 1 Corinthians 15. And the laser-focused subject of 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. I believe that this is the oldest written account of a thorough, clear presentation of the gospel. Now, of course, we know that there was an oral tradition that just just jumped right up, uh, right out of the gates, an oral tradition. Of course it did. The men and women that were following Christ, um, they were talking. You and I would be talking if that had happened and we had seen that. And so they're talking immediately. As a matter of fact, in the gospel of John in chapter 20, it says Mary Magdalene, because she had just seen the risen Christ, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, I've seen the Lord, I've seen the Lord. So of course, y'all, of course they're talking. And so we know that it is a, um, it is a trustworthy, a trustworthy oral tradition. 
Then we have a record of Peter, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. It's just several weeks after the event, several, just several weeks after uh, Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection. This sermon is in Acts chapter 2. Luke wrote that, but Luke didn't write that until the mid-60s, which was 10 or 12 or 15 years after he wrote, after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. Now, we're going to look at Acts 2 again in a little bit. So Paul, y'all, Paul is the first guy to, to lay it out so clearly, and I believe that it is 1 Corinthians 15. Guys, the truth, the truth never loses its power. Remember, Paul spent a year and a half constantly preaching the truth, the truth about Jesus to these folks in Corinth. So the truth never loses its power, but, but me and you, however, we people can have a tendency to lose their grip kind of on the truth. This church in Corinth, it was struggling, y'all. I mean, it was struggling, in the, and, and their, through their struggles, Paul really realized that they needed to refocus their attention on the gospel. Y'all, we need to refocus our attention, kind of drown out the white noise and focus our attention on the cross. So in chapter 15, Paul is bringing this letter to a close with a, a strong, strong proclamation of the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the folks in Corinth, they were sort of kind of wandering off and Paul is he's calling them back to the center. Y'all, he's calling them back to, to the bullseye. He's calling them back to the cross. Y'all, he's calling them back to the cross. I believe in 2020, we're being called back to the cross. So verse one in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I would remind you, this is Paul talking to the folks in Corinth. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, but though some of them have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, Paul says, he appeared also to me. Like these folks in Corinth, y'all, we cannot afford to stray. We cannot afford to stray from Christ. Y'all, every single claim about Christianity is rooted, its foundation is the resurrection. Its foundation is the resurrection. What we believe about this life and what we believe about the, the afterlife, it all hinges, it all depends on what Jesus did with death. And God's word here, it calls us back to the center. Y'all, it calls us back to the bullseye. It calls us back to the cross. We gotta be unified around that bullseye, right? You and I can disagree over stuff outside of that. It's okay. You and I can disagree on whether the rapture happens before the tribulation or in the middle of the tribulation or after the tribulation. We cannot agree on that. It's okay. But guess what? Guys, we cannot not agree on the risen Christ. We have got to be unified. 
Methodist, Baptist, Assembly of God. We got to be unified around the gospel, the core gospel. Y'all, let's look a little closer. Verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you receive, to which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. The gospel message that Paul preached to them, that they had received, the message that they, they, they had taken their stand in was the same gospel message that had saved them, Right? Paul wanted to remind them of that gospel because uh, apparently there were some false teachers that had been twisting that. You think there's false teachers today that are twisting the gospel? Just a little bit, just to get us just a little bit off. That was happening in Corinth. In fact, some of them, some of the folks in Corinth had begun to believe that there really wasn't even a resurrection. Paul tells us in verse 12, he says in verse 12, he says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So some of those people believed that there was no resurrection. And Paul, as a guy who had seen the risen Christ himself, he saw him himself on that Damascus road. Paul's taken these folks and he's taken us back to the basics, back to the basics of the message that they had welcomed and that they had received. Because y'all, acceptance of that gospel had saved them. And if you're a believer, acceptance of that gospel had has saved you. And because of that, you got to hold fast to it. If me and you say yes to that offer, if we say yes to the offer that the gospel makes us, we got to cling to it, man. We got we to gotta cleave to it. We got to hold fast to that. And that is true whether we're in the, in the middle of, of good times or, or rough times or great joys and blessings in life. Or if we're walking through a season of, uh, of darkness or of, of pain or of difficulty, we got to hold firmly to the hope that's found in the gospel. If not, just like the Corinthians, Paul says we believed in vain. If they could be so easily deceived, if we can be so easily deceived, then maybe what they claimed as belief really wasn't belief at all. If, if what they thought they believed wasn't good enough to assure them of their salvation, then that faith was worthless. It was worthless. Verse three, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul had received the the gospel message from Christ himself on that road. And then he passes that same message on to literally anyone that would listen to him. And those words that he used, and they're simple words, y'all, but those words that he used, they they indicate this careful and this, uh, this literal way that Christian teachers passed on tradition from one generation to the next. It's simple. Well, okay, what is, uh, what is the word that Paul delivered to them? You know, what, what, is, uh, what is the gospel that Paul says is of first importance? 1 Corinthians 15, he gives us, uh, he, Paul gives us th- uh, the central theme, the central theme of the gospel here. 
The last half of verse 3 and then verse 4 is this uh, integral key passage for the defense of Christianity. And he says that the, there's three kind of points that Paul says are of first importance. Number one is this, that Christ died for us according to to the scriptures, without that little nugget of information, his death is worthless. The belief is in vain. And those of us who, who say we believe in him, we're still stuck in our sins. We're still stuck in hopelessness. He died for our sins. The text says, according to the scriptures, Isaiah 53. Oh my goodness, Isaiah 53. I remember, like it was yesterday, y'all, the spring of 2000, reading this passage, Isaiah 53. Spring of 2000, I wasn't a Christian. I wasn't a Christian, but I was trying to figure out all this God stuff. I was Jewish. I believed in God. I wasn't a Christian, but I'm trying to figure all this stuff out. At the beginning of that year, I started in Genesis 1-1, and I started reading, and I'm reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. In the spring, I get, I get to, the, to the prophets, and in the spring, I get to Isaiah 53. And I read this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we're healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned, every one of us, to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Y'all, even being as clueless, and I'm talking about clueless. I didn't know nothing about no Jesus. Clueless as I was, this passage is clearly speaking about somebody. It's speaking about somebody, the text says, that is taking a hit for somebody else's stuff, somebody else's junk. It's talking about a guy that's taking a hit for somebody's iniquities. It says us all. Somebody is, is taking a hit and being crushed, and their being crushed is going to provide us peace. He's getting punished for, for my crime. That's what this passage, and it's 800 years, written 800 years before Christ, but it's speaking about somebody. Y'all, and I was so clueless, but I could tell that it was talking about somebody. Listen, Jesus' death, it was not some unfortunate tragedy. The purpose of his death as the sinless son of God was to satisfy a debt that in a gajillion years I could not have handled myself. And it reconciles us to God. Reconciles, like a churchy word. Look at at 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, Paul wrote this, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He's restoring a, a relationship. He's restoring a broken relationship. Don't you know that, 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 that Jesus Christ fixes broken stuff? He redeems broken stuff. He, he reconciles broken relationships. Well, how does he do that? He does that by not, how does he reconcile me? By not counting somehow my trespasses against me. And listen, even in the middle of, even in the middle of the brutality and the suffering of the crucifixion, Jesus Christ was not a victim. He was not a victim. 
no, no, no to the no. He was not a victim. He voluntarily laid his life down. He he went there on his own accord, right? John chapter 10. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I can take it up again. Nobody takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. He was not a victim. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they all, they all work together not only to condemn sin, but to provide a way to cleanse us from the sin and to destroy and to, to crush and to kick to the curb the power that sin can hold on us. 1 Peter chapter 2 says this, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, the tree is a cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. That sounds just, y'all, it sounds just like Isaiah 53. He bore our sins. And why did he bear our sins? So that we may die to that sin and live in his righteousness. That is like, I was going to say that really is good news. Man, that's the best news ever. So number one thing of first importance is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Number two is that he was buried. He was buried. The fact of Christ's death is revealed by the fact of his burial. Many people have, through the years, they even have tried to discount his actual death from the false teachers in Corinth and Ephesus and, and in, the Galatia, uh, in Galatia back then to the false teachers of today. But Jesus Christ did die on a cross and he was buried in a tomb. And after he died on that cross, Joseph of Arimathea and, and Nicodemus took the body of Jesus, they prepared it for burial and they placed him in a tomb. In John 19, the they that is spoken, uh, that John writes about in verse 42, that they is Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. So number two thing of first importance is that he in fact was buried. And then number three thing of first importance is that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Christ was raised permanently, forever. His father raised him from the dead. He came back to life from being a dead man in a tomb on the third day and as it was recorded in the Gospels. That's what what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record. And this, Paul says here, was in accordance with the Scriptures in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus uses the Old Testament prophet Jonah kind of as an analogy, kind of. And these are Jesus' words, right? For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man, that's what Jesus referred, often referred to himself as the Son of Man, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then Psalm 16, a psalm of King David. It looks towards the resurrection. A few minutes ago, I mentioned Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter two. And again, Peter is, is, is uh, excuse me, Luke is recording in Acts Peter's sermon, which was just several weeks after the resurrection, after Jesus runs out of that grave alive, and Peter quotes Psalm 16. And Peter interpreted and, and applied it as a prophecy of the resurrection of Christ. Listen to what Peter said. Acts 2, starting in verse 25. 
He says, for David says concerning him. For King David says concerning Christ. Well, this him is Jesus. This him, he's, Peter's talking about Jesus of Nazareth. This guy that, uh, that Peter had hung out with for three and a half years. This guy who just a few weeks before this, Peter had denied, hit the road, ran away from. That's the him that Peter is talking about here. And then he quotes Psalm 16, and Psalm 16 written a thousand years before this. He says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. And here you go. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy ones see corruption. This is a dual layer Psalm of King David. On the one hand, it expresses David's hope and David's assurance. But on the other hand, Lord, it goes way beyond David to somebody greater than he, namely his son, the Messiah, the Holy One. In verse 27, it goes way, way beyond anything that David can claim for himself. David would never have called himself God's Holy One. David would never have claimed that his body would avoid decay and corruption. Then he goes on, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then in verse 29, Peter then is addressing the people. He's outside of the quote from, uh, uh, from Psalm 16 and he says this, brothers, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. Now think about it. He's preaching to about 3,000 people. They're all Jews. They all know King David. King David is their guy. Like King, King David is still the Jews guy. And so Peter is talking to these Jewish folks, three or 4,000 of them, and he says, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to today. There's no doubt he's pointing. They're there, right? They know where David's tomb is and he probably is pointing. Y'all know it's right over there. You can go over there. You can go. He's dead. He's buried. Go over there. Dig it up if you want. There's a Rotten, rotten out body in that grave. Y'all, everybody's guy is dead except ours. The Muslim's guy, Muhammad, dead, rotten in the ground. Buddha, dead, rotten in the ground. We got the only guy that walked out of a grave flawless. He went in the grave, beaten to a bloody pulp. And he was dead. He was dead. And he walks flawlessly out. We're the only ones that got the guy that walks out of the grave alive. He goes on in verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, Peter's talking about David, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants, one of David's descendants on his throne. He's talking about the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel. And he says, I'm going to establish your throne forever. It's going to be an everlasting throne. And he's, he's looking towards Christ. If you go read Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy, read it. It traces uh, Jesus right back to King David. He's the legal heir to the throne. Verse 31, it says, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we're all witnesses. And y'all got to know this. Look, this is not some enlightened theologian of the 20th or 21st century. This is a fisherman dude. This is not some uh, dude that's got five PhDs. It's not some guy who's got a hidden agenda. 
His agenda cost him his life. He got crucified upside down. Look at verse 32. He's talking to several thousand people and they all kind of know each other. And he says, guys, this just happened. We all saw it. God raised him up from the dead. It wasn't done in secret. You saw it. You all witnessed it. Let's jump back to Paul. Let's jump back to 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 5. Paul really echoes this latter part of Peter's sermon starting in verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, but some of them have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. He appeared, he appeared, he appeared, he appeared. Four times in those few verses. You think it's important that he appeared? You got a dead guy walking around, right? He appeared, so he died. So he was buried, he was resurrected, and then Paul says he appeared to, to Cephas, to Peter, a bunch of other folks, and then to Paul himself, Paul himself on that Damascus road. It's the resurrection that brings hope to our lives. Peter said it like this years later in 1 Peter chapter 1. Track this with me now, starting in verse 3. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Y'all, because of the, the, the living hope, we have the living hope. We have a living hope because of the resurrection. Y'all, we have an inheritance and not just some old tired inheritance. We have an, an, an unbelievable, um, imperishable, undefiled, untainted inheritance. Why? Because of the resurrection. We have a hope and an inheritance because of the resurrection. We possess that as believers because Jesus has been raised from the dead. So again, y'all, when the storms of life beat down on us, when life is just wearing us out, how many of y'all today feel worn out? Life has just worn you out. Or when life just seems kind of perfect. We got to hold fast. We got to cling to the message of the gospel. The resurrection of Jesus, it brings us tremendous hope. It brings us huge hope. And the hope of that gospel is not just for for this life, just for this here and now, but really it's primarily, it focuses on the promise and the hope of a future inheritance with the Lord. So just as Jesus has been resurrected, me and you, we wait, we wait, and we're waiting with, with eager anticipation, with eager expectation in the hope of our resurrection that's coming one day. Listen, God desires, he wants for all of us to be bathed in, um, to live in, to in the south we say to waller in hope. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. Romans 15, 13 says this. May the God of what? May the God of hope, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing Believe and be filled with all this joy and peace. Why? So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. 
So man, hope is the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. Hope is the difference. I remember like it was yesterday, January 17, 2001, I went from hopeless to hopeful. I remember the feeling of, of like, what that, like what that felt like, being hopeless on January the 16th and then having hope on January the 17th, the day that I gave my life to Christ. The difference is hope. And that hope is absolutely, positively grounded in the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. The fact of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And I know, y'all, that you're watching online. And I know there's plenty of y'all watching who are believers. And I know that you're filled with hope. I know you are. But I also know that you're filled with stories of a past. Tragic, maybe, mistakes in the past. Big mistakes, little mistakes. You may have said some nasty stuff to your mama. You may have said some nasty stuff to your dad. You may have spoke some crazy, hurtful things to your children. You may have been on drugs. You may have been unfaithful to your husband. You may have been unfaithful to your wife. You may have been kicked out of school. I don't know. You may have spent some time in jail. You may have grown up and been filled with just rancid bitterness. You may have been filled with just rancid racism. You may have lived your whole life and instead of bathing in hope, you bathed in hate. But God changed you. He changed you. You can't be the same on this side of the cross. And he didn't change you because you were a decent guy that needed a second chance. He didn't change you because you were a decent lady that needed a second chance. But because a dead man named Jesus of Nazareth walked flawlessly alive out of a sealed tomb. Bryant and our worship team sang, because he lives a minute ago, man. Because he lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, every bit of fear that I have is gone. I ain't scared of no Rona. All the fear is gone. For me, I lived my whole life scared to death of death. I used to sneak in my mom and daddy's bedroom and, and sleep at the foot of their bed on the floor because I was scared to death of death. I ain't scared to death no more. I ain't because he lives. Because he lives, he holds my future, y'all. And life is, Bryant sang it, and life is worth living. And I'm living in hope because he lives. Y'all, that is so available to all of us. If you are listening, watching this message, because he lives, you can live. And it's what is of first importance, and we're not going in all kind of crazy theological directions. This is a simple, the gospel is simple. I repent, I turn away from sin, I turn towards God. I'm not per gonna be perfect, I'm not. But I'm gonna repent of my sin. I'm gonna turn away from it, I'm gonna turn towards God, and I'm gonna believe. What am I gonna believe? I'm gonna believe that ancient gospel message that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. I am, what's of first importance? That he died, that Jesus died for my sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again after three days according to the scriptures. And I want you to just, if that's you today and you want to surrender that to Christ and know that your, your eternity is secured, just pray this little prayer with me. 
And if you're by yourself at home, scream it to the heavens. Lord, let today be the day that I, that I go from, from hopeless to hope. Let today be the day that I go from death to life. Lord, I do repent of my sin. I do. And I'm turning towards you. And I believe in my head and in my heart that your death on that cross took care of my sins. I believe it. And Lord, I beg you and I ask you to save me. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you said that today, and if you meant that today, he, is, he has saved you. And you have gone from lost to found. You've gone from hopeless to hopeful. Y'all, there ain't nothing like it. There ain't nothing like it. Because he lives, you can face tomorrow. Let me pray one more time. I'm going to turn it back over to the worship team. And you know what? If you, if you said yes to that offer, please let us know that. Private message us, you know, on, on our Facebook page or send us an in. Just let us know. We want to pray with you and for you. You can even go, you know, typically we have a prayer team in here who is talking with people after our worship service. Well, we got a virtual prayer team, and I want you to let us know uh, that your life changed today. Let us know. Let us know. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to worship. We thank you for the opportunity to proclaim your gospel. Lord, we know and we trust that you're taking all these events that are going on on our planet and you're going to start revival. Lord, that more people, it's like my friend texted me Friday, more people are going to hear the gospel and more people are going to give their lives to you because of what's going on. And so, Lord, we love you and we thank you for the opportunity in Christ's name. Amen.